podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Well, tonight we kick off a new series on the supernatural, and we're not really sure how long it'll go. Um, We're just sort of following the things that are in uh, in Pastor Brady's hearts and in the team's hearts as far as what we'll talk about week to week. But I want to frame this conversation for you because it has the potential to be controversial uh, on several different fronts. A part of the reason we read the Creed is so that you can distinguish in your mind The things that you have to hold, as it were, with a closed hand. The things that you have to believe if you want to call yourself a Christian. I say have to believe. The things that you choose to hold on to. If you're going to say, look, yeah, I'm in this. I'm a Christ follower. Then the creed represents the elements that we hold on to uh, and believe because that's what it means to be a Christian. But part of the reason we say the creed is so that there are, you can distinguish for yourself uh, the other subjects on which there's allowed to be a diversity of opinion. So the creeds are important because it, it, it sets for us the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and, and His work in us. And by the way, when it says that we believe in the uh, one holy Catholic church, we're not talking about a particular denomination that's simply the word for universal, as in the church, capital C, the church of, the church of Jesus Christ, the church of our God, God's church, His body, all around the world. Just to clear that up for some of you, if you're like, we're holy Catholic, you know, and you're wondering about that. Here. Um, but we say that so that we can, we can say, okay, look, these are the essentials. Those are the things we hold with a closed hand. But there's loads of other subjects that we can hold with an open hand, as it were. That we can say, you know what? We, not to say we should be irresponsible and believe every little wind of doctrine that kind of blows through every pop thing that we hear. Not at all. But, that, but to understand that there's sometimes respected opinions that disagree on some subjects and that that's Okay. And that's okay here at New Life. If you, Pastor Brady said it this morning. That look, if you find yourself saying, you know, I'm not sure I can agree with that or I think I'd like to wrestle with that more, that's great. I want to tell you that I'm on a journey uh, with this subject as well. I, I grew up in Malaysia and um, I remember being part of a, a church that believed in the gifts and the move of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I, I remember as a child having these wild meetings at our home and my parents, you know, casting demons out of people and I would kind of, it was past my bedtime, but I'd sneak down the balcony, the, the steps and kind of peek down into the living room and think, what's going on? And I didn't know she had that, you know, just kidding. Uh, but, but, you know, it was, it was exciting and I remember witnessing all the stuff and there was an evidence of the Holy Spirit at work uh, in our midst. And this is the other thing that's important for our discussion about this, is to be Trinitarian about this. What I mean is, some, some believers take this thing of, well, Jesus said it's finished, and so everything God's done, and it's as if God's up in heaven saying, I'm done, what you got? I, I did my bit, what are you going to do to save the world? But that's not a very Trinitarian view because, yes, God's work in Jesus the Son is done, but God's work through the Holy Spirit continues. And it continues on earth, and it continues through us, it continues through the church. And so I remember seeing all this stuff, and, and seeing people get healed, and, and, and being in prayer meetings where people really believed. And I was shaped by that at an early age. When I came to the States to go to college, I, um, I encountered a different version of the belief in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. One that I wasn't used to. I, I went to 
um, let's say, a private Christian university in Tulsa, uh, <laughs> named after a famous healing evangelist. And, uh, and, and I had wonderful professors, and our faculty was sound and, and represented all the, the, the different streams of the body of Christ. But I had very interesting discussions with students. Uh, I, I remember, in particular, my freshman year, a student coming into my dorm room, and he was absolutely convinced that everything that Jesus uh, paid for, we should have in its entirety and in its fullness now, and you should never be sick again, and you ought to claim healing as your uh, divine right. It's sort of this thing that God, you know, and uh, I, I was shocked. I believed in healing, but I didn't, under, I had never been exposed to this, uh, what I perceived to be kind of a more radical approach that said, look, it's your fault if you don't get healed, basically, because God's done his part. And what I came to understand, the longer I sort of uh, lived in that city and, and, and understood a little bit about where some of these people were coming from, I realized that it was a bit of, it seems to me, like a bit of a reaction to this movement maybe on the other side that sort of said God was indifferent and God didn't really care. And maybe even worse yet, God was handing out diseases, helter-skelter. You know, say, oh, you can handle this. I'll give you cancer. I'll give, you know. And so there was this movement that said, you know what? We don't believe that. And they wanted to say, we think God is good, and we think God at his core is not trying to assign sickness and disease to people. But I think somewhere along the way, as so often happens, maybe the conversation went a couple steps too far. And it went beyond just saying God is good and God can heal and healing is for today, but it went so far as to say you ought to expect healing every time you pray for someone, and if they're not healed, it's either a sin or a lack of faith. But see, this is problematic because we've now had enough decades of that teaching around that we've seen some of those faith teachers die of illness. And so that's enough history with that teaching for us to say, okay, something's not quite right. You can't stand up and tell me that every sickness is because of a sin and every lack of healing is because of a lack of faith and that it's that simple every time because what about you or you or that person or that person. And then there's this issue of evaluating how much faith is enough faith. I mean, Jesus said, look, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, so how much is too much? Or how much is enough? How much is not enough? And so there's this squirrely sort of thing that happens. The trouble with this conversation is so often it's filled with stories and personal experience. And, and, and both sides can get very heated about this because both sides have stories. One person will say, well, listen, I've, I, you know, I did this and I prayed these scriptures and I claimed this thing and I did this and God healed me. And the other person will say, yeah, well, I did that and it didn't happen. And, and it seems, and then the one person will say, well, you're arguing from experience, you need to argue from scripture. But they're both arguing from scripture. And then it, you kind of get in this little logjam. C.S. Lewis said, what we learn from experience depends on the kind of philosophy we bring to the experience. If you've determined in your mind that miracles don't happen, that this is a closed universe, that God does not interact with humanity, then it doesn't matter what experience you have or someone else have, has, you're going to reason it away. You're going to explain it away. You say, oh, well, no, that wasn't really a miracle. That wasn't really this, and that wasn't really that. And it's just... And you're going to rationalize it because you've already brought that philosophy to the experience. Conversely, if you have this philosophy that this is always the way it works, then when somebody doesn't get healed, what are you going to do? You're just going to invoke your 
already held belief system, and you're going to say, well, I know why. It's because they didn't have faith. Or there's some hidden sin we didn't know about. Well, this is tricky. What I want for us tonight is to try to responsibly, biblically, historically navigate through between either of those pitfalls and try to find, uh, try to untangle this a little bit and answer a few questions. Tonight, in particular, we're going to focus on what is true about God with regard to healing. What is true about God with regard to healing? There's a story in Mark 10, and it appears in a couple of other Gospels as well, but Mark 10, verse 46, says, Then they came to Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, I want to point out a couple of things here. He's blind. He can't see who's coming. He doesn't know who's there. It's the people that tell him, Bartimaeus, it's Jesus of Nazareth. The name Jesus is simply the name Yeshua, named after Joshua. It's a common name in the first century. It's not as if there's only one Jesus in the first century. There were probably a lot of different young Jewish kids named Yeshua. And so they say, no, this is the Yeshua from Nazareth, you know, the one from that town over there. And they sort of name him in a geographically descriptive moniker. But what Bartimaeus says is, he says, son of David, have mercy on me. What Bartimaeus chooses to call Jesus is not just, hey, Jesus of Nazareth, hey, the Jesus that grew up over in that town over there. He decides to call him son of David, which is a very particular Messiah type of phrase. They understood that the Messiah, the chosen one of God, would come from the lineage of David. And so Bartimaeus, even in the way that he addresses Jesus, is in a sense making a claim about who he thinks this man is. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, you're the one, the chosen one, he might have said. Messiah, maybe. Have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man, cheer up on your feet. This is remarkable. One minute they're rebuking him, next minute they're saying, cheer up. Well, I'm not cheerful because you were just scolding me. Anyway, okay. Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Now imagine this is a scene. There's a crowd watching. There's a crowd following Jesus. There's a crowd that was trying to shush Bartimaeus. Now they're saying, hey, cheer up. Look, he wants you. And now everybody is paying attention. I imagine that maybe they made this huge circle and Jesus and Bartimaeus are now in center stage. And Jesus says in verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? What? Are you being mean, Jesus? Like, is this a game? Are you trying to mock him? What do you want me to do for you? You, you, you wait, you call him, you let everybody surround him and watch him, and now you say, what do you want me to do for you? Are you trying to embarrass me? What is this? Punked, first century edition? I mean, what, is, what are you trying to do? Obviously, we don't believe, because we believe Jesus is God, we don't believe he's trying to punk Bartimaeus. I wonder if he's saying, what is it you want? 
Because there's a number of possible responses to that. He could have said, food. I'm a blind beggar and I need dinner. He could have said, how about a place to stay? I'm, maybe he was homeless, like there's a good chance of that. And he's saying, look, I just need, a, I need somewhere to stay tonight. He could have asked for a number of different things. But I wonder if Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Because Jesus is trying to see what Bartimaeus believes about who Jesus is. Because if he had said, oh yeah, give me bread. say, well yeah, you could have asked anybody for bread. You could have asked a good teacher for bread. If he said, oh, give me a place to stay. You could have asked a good teacher for bread. But he says, I want to see. The blind man said, Rabbi, teacher, I want to see. I suspect that you're more than just a rabbi. I suspect there's something chosen, anointed about you. I suspect there's something about you that means I should ask you for more than just what I'd ask anybody. Ask of anybody. I would suggest to you tonight that what you ask of God reveals what you believe about God. What you ask of God reveals what you believe about God. Uh, listen, it's, un, it's an uncomfortable thought, but if somebody kept, walked around us with a little tape recorder or something, you know, real low-tech, and, and, and recorded all your prayers, what would it say about my theology? Because I think more than anything else, my prayer reveals my view of God. If I'm constantly saying, oh, God, do this, oh, God, do this, someone might, someone might conclude that you think God is your errand boy. Or maybe if someone recorded your prayers, you think, you think God's an angry schoolmaster. Whatever it, the case may be, our prayer gives away our theology. What we ask of God often reveals what we believe about God. And that's why I think before we even talk about specific scriptures and talk about the healing passages and what we should do with it, what, we, what, the, what is at stake in the discussion tonight is our view of God. That's the real issue that's at stake. And I would like to suggest that your view of God is more important, ultimately, than the outcome of our prayer. That in the end, doesn't it matter more what we actually believe about God? That's what I want us to wrestle with tonight. Oftentimes, this is where the discussion goes wrong because we say, well... I think God is, you know, good, or I don't think God is good, or I don't think He's loving, or I think He's powerful, but I don't think He cares, or I think he's, He cares, but I don't think He's that powerful, or I think He does this, but not, you know. There's a couple of things that we need to sort of establish up front. First of all, sickness, disease, suffering was not part of God's original design. For the camp that says, well, maybe God wants you to have cancer. I would say, why didn't he give it to Adam? I don't think sickness, suffering, disease, in an ultimate sense, was part of God's original design. It's not there in the garden. It's not there. They had bodies that didn't break down, possibly bodies that didn't sweat. Who knows? What else was this result? The result of the curse. But certainly, bodies that die and give in and wear out, that was not part of the original design. Baldness, wrinkles, you know, I'm working on my problem back here. It wasn't part of the original design. 
let's make creatures that will wear out, whose joints will collapse, and they'll live in debilitating pain for the last few decades of their life. Not part of the original design. Furthermore, you would have to agree that sickness, disease, suffering is not part of God's final outcome. It's not there. When you read Revelation, we're going to read this scripture here toward the end of this talk tonight. You'll see, look, when we get to heaven, it's not, wow, praise God, we're in heaven. Oh, bummer that you're in a wheelchair. It's not part of the final outcome. It's not. It's not the original design, and it's not part of the final outcome. Say, okay, well, how did God do that? Wait a second now. I thought you said, you know, God's got, he's got to kind of work within the rules that he set up and all this stuff. So if it's not part of his design and, and it's sin and the fallen world, it's kind of opened the door to disease and, and our bodies breaking down and all everything, injustice, all that's wrong with the world, if that's really the result of sin and the fall, then how in the world does God pull the rabbit out of the hat? How does he reverse this? How does he make it so that the final outcome is not that? How does God do it? The answer, in a word, is Jesus. It's so remarkable when we begin to understand what it means that God, through Jesus, came to the world. A few weeks ago, we talked about why the humanity of Christ matters so much. And it's this first thing. Jesus entered into our suffering. It's important for you to believe tonight that, that the problem of pain for God is not just an intellectual dilemma. You know, if you're in college classes or whatever and you're, you're getting to a debate with your religion or philosophy professor or whatever, at some point the discussion turns to the theodicy question. You know, how does a good God allow... You know, and it's so easy to engage in that conversation in the form of a debate. Well, you see, there's free will and he had to have free will because he needed love and, da, 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 and all this stuff. And you go down the road and you're arguing and you're into this apologetics thing and I love that and that's okay, but you have to know that God's response to the problem of human suffering was not to give us an equation on a chalkboard, but to come and enter it. He entered into our suffering. That, that in the final analysis, God can say, when you say, I'm hurting, and, and God, I've had to bury a loved one, he can say, I know what that's like. Because I lost one too. He can talk about that. When you say, I don't understand why I had a best friend that self-destructed and committed suicide, he could say, I know, it happened to me too. One of my followers did the same. And we can talk about a God that doesn't view the problem of pain as some intellectual dilemma, but a God that says, because of Jesus, he entered into our suffering. But he did more than that. He also healed the sick. Matthew references when Jesus heals the sick, he references that Jesus is doing this to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy that says that the Messiah will bear our infirmities upon himself. In fact, it's interesting, you'd say, well, on the one hand, you'd say, well, hey, everybody in the Gospels was healed. you say, well, yeah, but everyone in a healing line has a testimony. You know, like, they made it in the Gospels because they got healed. But that's not to say Jesus prayed for people that didn't get healed, no. But it is plausible to suggest that there were some people that he just didn't go to, some towns he didn't make it to. He was in a particular region of the world. I mean, if we wanted to be technical about it, there was a whole lot of 
the mass of humanity that he wasn't with. But what is amazing is that everyone who came to him, he healed. Every person who asked, he healed. Uh, Luke 6. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Isn't that amazing? Power was coming from him and healing them all. And then there's Luke 5, verse 15. It says, yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him, to be healed of their sickness. They're crowding around him. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. That's interesting too. Everyone who particularly asked, he said, yes. But there were times when crowds pressed in and he said, I've got to go pray. I don't understand that exactly. But our third observation about Jesus, okay, yes, he enters into our suffering. Yes, he healed the sick while he was on earth. But thirdly, more significantly, he carried our infirmities upon himself. The Isaiah passage we talked about, Isaiah 53, we'll pick up just verse 4 or 5. But I want to talk to you about the chapter in a second. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, and yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Throughout Isaiah's prophecies, he has this vision of Messiah. And it's easy for us as, as you know, charismatic believers to, to lift these two verses and say, aha, you see physical healing. But Isaiah's vision of Messiah was much more than physical healing. It was a very total healing. When Isaiah, what Isaiah said about this Messiah is that he would lead to the end of all wars. He would lead to a peace for his own people. He would lead, maybe Isaiah had in mind, lead to the peace as in the wholeness of Israel, the nation that had been fractured into Israel and Judah and the 12 tribes split into 10 and 2. Maybe he, I think part of his vision seemed to, to be larger than just this idea of physical healing. It was the healing of all things. Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter 2, the verse we read. Because in 1 Peter 2, he's not, talk, he, he's not specifically, he's not singling out sickness. He's not singling out disease. In fact, he's talking about first the restoring of our relationship with God. And then he goes on, he's talking about slaves and masters. He's talking about the restoring of relationships among each other. And then he says to them, look, sometimes you're going to suffer because your masters are going to be mean to you. And then he says, look, but Jesus suffered too. And then he says this in verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. My point is not to say, oh, and there is one group of, one stream in the body of Christ that says, oh, healing has nothing to do with the cross, and healing's not in the atonement. I don't believe that. But neither would I say that that sickness is, is singled out. What I'm trying to give you this picture of is that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is he paid for the restoration of all things. That it's much bigger than the cough or the cold or the disease. It's the setting right of everything that was fractured and broken and wrong and sick with the world. Does that make sense? 
It's much larger, and I think we say, oh, by his stripes we are healed, so, you know, and I think that, that that's okay to say that, but we can't begin to pray that until we have this wide-angle lens view of saying that, look, when what Isaiah said about Messiah, what Peter was saying about Messiah is that he paid in his death and resurrection for the res- restoration of all things, that one day there would be no more injustice, there would be no more sex trafficking, there would be no more genocide in Rwanda, there would be no more of any of this stuff, that everything that's sick and wrong and diseased about our world will one day be set right. Praise God. That's much bigger than, oh, by stripes we are healed, we need, you know, I'm going to clean you. But, uh, let me add to this. Part of the reason why I think it's necessary to view it with a much wider lens is because there were lots of healings before the cross. Actually, every single one of Jesus' healings was before the cross. God healed in the Old Testament. I think what we're seeing is that God in his nature is a healer and that in Jesus he paid for all things to be healed. Uh, Furthermore, if the apostles wanted to teach this thing of Well, look, because Jesus paid for your healing, no believer should ever be sick if he has enough faith. They certainly didn't say it. I mean, Peter, he would have had the perfect opportunity to say it. Follow it up, Peter. Come on, bring it home. He doesn't say it. Paul doesn't say it. James doesn't say it. John doesn't say it. That's odd, isn't it? I'm not a scholar of church history, but I have devoted time to reading and and, and studying it. And I I can't find... Another instance in church history where people taught that, that because of the cross, no believer should ever be sick, or that every, every person who prays for healing should get it. I, I, I can't find someone who taught that. That teaching is surprisingly new. We maybe ought to be suspicious of it. Pastor Brady was a lot stronger this morning. He flat out said, it's heresy. I would say it's unbiblical, which is another way of saying that. Kinder, maybe. I don't know. It's just, you know. Sunday night, we're a little more chill, you know. Just kidding. So what is this? Well, I don't understand. Why? How can something be paid for and yet not have all the benefits of it now? You know, a few weeks ago, we actually, all of you experienced this with your families. You bought gifts that couldn't be opened until a particular day. Now, none of your kids came up to you and said, Dad, that, you paid for that. Yes, I did pay for that. Then I receive it now. I'm like, well, it's not Christmas Day. <laughs> but Dad, I believe you paid for my new bike. Well, I did pay for your new bike. I want it now, but it's not Christmas Day. It's lunacy, isn't it? But aren't we like that a little bit? Well, God, you paid for this. Yes, I did. So I want it now. Well, you can get some of it now, but the ultimate culmination of it is coming. It's what theologians call the kingdom come already, but not yet. The kingdom has come, but it's culminating. It's escalating. It will one day fully be completed. Listen to this, Ephesians 1, verse 3. Praise be to the the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Has blessed us, right? You're like, oh, yes, I'm going to take just that one verse. Wow, that really shook. I'm going to take that one verse and see, it says God has blessed us. It's already done. Verse 9. 
And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. He has blessed us, but there's a time when all things will be put under Christ. There's a culmination, a fulfillment. He goes on in verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now this is foreign for us because, and I'm grateful for this, what I'm about to say, but we put a down payment on something and then we get to move in. You pay a down payment on a house, you get to move in. What they're saying is there's a down payment, but you don't get all of it till it comes. Romans 8, Paul says it a different way. We, verse 22, we know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits, we've got it, the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly yet as we wait. We've got it, but we wait. We've got it, but we wait already, but not yet. I've got it now, yet I long for what's coming. As we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In Jewish culture, when you would get engaged, the betrothal process, and oftentimes the betrothal process would last at least a year, sometimes two years. And the way it worked was this. As soon as you got betrothed or engaged, it, you, you were considered legally married, except that you had to live in separate homes. Some of you are thinking, what's the point of that? That's kind of a bummer, right? She had to live with her parents. He had to live with his parents. But it was legally considered marriage so much so that if they were to call it off at that point, it would have been considered a divorce. This is that moment in the Gospels when Matthew talks about Joseph and Mary encountering this. They're betrothed to be married, but it says that Joseph was considering divorcing her. But well, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't use the word divorce with engagement. That's not divorce. That's just breaking up the engagement. That's oops, you know, a very expensive oops. But, it, you know, but, but in Jewish culture, it's not, it wasn't like that. It was like, look, 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 once you've started this, it's done. You, you've got the, to some degree some of the responsibilities of it, but you don't have the full benefits of it. But the bride is supposed to be ready because unannounced, the bridegroom will leave his house with the procession and come over to her father's house and say, the hour has come. And then he takes her, they go back, they have their ceremony, and then they go and, you know, consummate the marriage. I think there's something beautiful about this thing of the bride saying, yeah, I, I am already married, but, but yet I'm waiting for the groom to come. Something powerful about that tension that says, yes, I've got it already, but yet, not yet. And so I long and I wait till the groom comes one day unannounced and says, the hour has come, taking you home. See, I think if we insist on everything here and now, there's a bit of incongruence in the faith teaching. Because if the faith teaching says Jesus paid for it, Therefore, I can receive it now, all now by faith. And we shouldn't stop at praying for disease. We should also rebuke gray hair and wrinkles and aging and 
running out of breath when you climb up the stairs, you know. We should rebuke all those things because they've all been paid for. And there's a place where that line of reasoning breaks down. In Revelations 21, verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Here's the line. For the old order of things has passed away. Wow. C.S. Lewis points out that even one of the most remarkable miracles that Jesus did, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus was raised from the dead only to die again. If we think that what we get to have here is all there is, I'd say that's not all that great. We must be convinced that what's coming is better than what is. I love how Brady said it this morning. It's not that we have a low view of healing. We have a high view of healing. We just have a higher view of heaven. That what's coming ultimately is better than what is. So what do we do? So, okay, so we live in this already but not yet, and, and we get to have these foretastes of glory divine, and we get to have the first fruits of it, we get to experience bits of it, and that's what miracles are, is God breaking through and pointing us signs that says, look, 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 as I remake your body, as I heal you now, that's all signs and hints and foreshadowing of what's coming when I remake all things. Then what about now? I think what's helpful for us, the reason we have this wide-angle lens view tonight is because what's important is for us to believe that God is for your healing. He is. And sometimes that breaks through here and now. But even when it does, or even when it doesn't, your full healing is coming. It's heaven. The full renewal of your body, the full remaking of you and me and all the earth is coming. And I, I want to pray and fight for it here because it's better to live here healthy than sick. But I know that either way I have hope. And either way we must be convinced of God's goodness and his love for us. The worst thing in the world is to walk away and says, oh, well, I guess what you're saying is God's indifferent. No, we can't conclude that. Or to say, well, if I'm not healed, it means God doesn't care. That's certainly not true. Or to say, well, if God doesn't heal, it means he's not trying to do anything for my healing. That's not true. Jesus came and suffered and died and rose again so that all of it can be remade. But part a very real reason why we're doing this series is to be stretched about the here and now, to be challenged about the here and now. If we say, okay, well, I do believe that God is good. I do believe that sickness is not his design or his final outcome. I do believe that he cares very deeply for me. Then what I ask of God, I want it to be congruent with what I believe about God.
And if we believe those things about God, we will always, always, always pray for healing. I think to not pray for healing, to not ask, is to say, I don't really believe you care. I think it's to say, I don't really believe you're good. Or, I don't really believe you're powerful. We can't live with that view. So let's stand tonight and let's practice this. Not in a circus way, but in a very simple way. As John Wimber used to say, naturally supernatural, supernaturally natural, just part of what it means to have the Holy Spirit living and at work in us. If you're sick in your body or you know somebody close to you who is, would you raise your hand? And people around you, keep your hand up. And if people around you would gather, surround them, lay your hands on them. Jesus said, for those who follow me, these signs will follow them. They'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. James reiterated it. He said, look, if anyone's sick, call the elders. Lay hands on them. They'll be healed. This is what we do. Next week, we'll talk about our specific role and and what it means to ask and obey and have faith and all of that stuff. But tonight, what we must believe, what we must settle is that God is good, that God is not for your sickness. He's not. That He's done everything necessary to do away with it. What we're asking is that He would let that break through in the here and now. Does that make sense? What we believe about God reveals, what we ask of God reveals what we believe about Him. So we're going, since we believe He's good, loving, He cares, we're going to ask. So Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, your Son that you sent to the earth, who took all our infirmities upon Himself, who who paid the price, yes, for our sickness, yes, for our healing. Yes, for the remaking of all things, but even specifically the issues we're dealing with. And God, you know the story, every story, every situation, every circumstance. And God, we know you are powerful. You're able. More than that, we know that healing is part of who you are. It's an expression of who you are. If you want this. So God, as your kids, as your children, we're saying in Jesus' name, heal. Be healed. Every body, every sickness, every mind, every emotion, every strange unknown disease, everything that we are, that's way beyond us. The truth is it's all beyond us. And so in Jesus' name we say be healed. Be healed. Be whole. Let us taste the foretaste of what's coming. And Father, we thank you that what's coming is better than what is. I pray for every one of us to have a sense of hope inside of us, hope for miracles here and now, and an even stronger hope for the remaking of all things, for the restoring of all things. Let us leave with this faith in you, our God, that is good, that cares, that intervenes. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this is going to be an interesting series. God bless you, everybody. Grab your kids, hang out. We'll see you next week. We'll talk about kind of our role in this.